Good afternoon, it's Wednesday the 6th of May 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Um, well, Mike, what are we into the 43rd, perhaps our viewers and listeners will check me on that, 43rd day of house arrest in UK. We are locked up and we continue to be locked up based, it seems, on completely flawed and manipulated uh, COVID figures. Uh, so let's have a look at them then. Uh, this is the total number of global cases so far, 3,747,000. Uh, 258,962 global deaths, uh, 1.25 million global recoveries, uh, and that means uh, we have 2.237 million active cases at the moment, of which uh, 2.188 million are considered mild, uh, and another drop in the uh, cases considered serious um, or critical to 49,282. Uh, now, Brian, as you say, uh, very sadly, it seems, uh, our friend here, uh, what's his name? Oh, yes, Neil Ferguson, uh, eminently forgettable, has had to step back, resign, whatever it happens to be, uh, from his job um, advising the government because, well, apparently uh, he invited his, uh, his lover, as she's been described, who's married, uh, to his home for some... Uh, lockdown entertainment research i think it's called research. Mike. well we'll see we'll see a bit more about that later on uh, he's had this to to resign uh, what has been really interesting uh, brian is that on the radio 4 today program this morning uh, they had david aranovich on from the times who of course was there to make sure that we understood that this this was a ridiculous situation that uh, ferguson had had to resign uh, that uh, uh, and he was giving him all the support he could possibly give him. So uh, he implied that the Times would not have run the story. And of course, the, 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 the story was originally run in the Telegraph, which is why put, we put the Telegraph uh, slide up. Uh, but he was implying that uh, that the Times wouldn't have run the story because, uh, and, and that's of course nonsense. He suggested that Ferguson's actions were insignificant, no, no worse than a member of the public driving a couple of miles to take their dog for a walk and making an assessment about the safety of that. But that's what the police are then um, threatening people and arresting some people for, isn't it? Uh, uh, absolutely. Uh, at no point was he willing to acknowledge uh, that the idea of social distancing and self-isolation were policies that Ferguson has cam been campaigning on for a very long time. Yeah. So, you know, this is the key point. If, if he was ignoring his own advice, then his advice can't be good. I don't think... I, I... Put it another way, I think Ferguson did what he did because he knew there is not the risk that has been pumped up for the wider public. He wasn't worried about catching anything because he doesn't actually believe what, what has been pumped out. Uh, well, if that's true, Brian, and I, uh, I can agree to you, with you on that, uh, then of course he has to answer for that. He has to tell yeah. us why that is, why he felt that it was acceptable for him to behave in this way. Anyway, he stepped back which of course means that the argument is about whether he should have stepped back or not rather than answering that question. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a very key point. Of course, he's not getting it all scot-free. Uh, this is uh, from Twitter. I almost admire uh, Neil Ferguson. His lover is a hard hardline climate activist. So he shut down all air travel, locked everyone in their homes and trashed the global economy for her. It's quite sweet. Uh, I think a home workout was the least she could do to say thanks. So, so some people understanding the situation uh, completely there. And, and 
Was a home workout inside two meter separation? Or uh, well, we may have some evidence uh, for that later on, but we'll, we'll come to that in a bit. Uh, now, uh, this uh, graph is one that we've been showing uh, over the last couple of weeks. This is the non-lockdown versus uh, lockdown graph, and uh, well, uh, we got a bit of uh, a little bit of criticism, uh, Brian, or at least a, a comment on it. Now, as you can see, just to remind everybody that on the left, the green bars there are the countries or some of the countries that have not uh, had a lockdown. Uh, Mexico sort of has a lockdown, which began on the 2nd of April, uh, and the countries on the right are lockdown countries, and, and we've been highlighting the, the fact that uh, you know there's a, a stark difference between these two. Um, but uh, we got some criticism uh, from a member of the public who said, uh, fake graph, uh, you've excluded New Zealand, Australia and Thailand, all countries with strong lockdowns and very low rates of infection. This proves the graph has been cherry-picked to prove, in inverted commas, the headline whilst excluding contradictory evidence. Well, of course, the graph wasn't cherry-picked. Uh, what we did was we took, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list, we took some countries which are in lockdown and some countries which are not in lockdown, uh, gave a comparison of that uh, with, the, with making the point uh, that the non-lockdown countries didn't have the runaway problem that the lockdown countries claimed would, that, that they would have. And that, that is the key point here. Uh, the the non-lockdown countries haven't had the runaway problem quite the opposite. In fact, in general, they seem to be doing better than the lockdown countries. And we'll come on to why that might be uh, now. Uh, because here we have an email from Neil Ferguson to uh, a viewer of the UK column. Uh, and uh, we're going to go through uh, a couple of the things that he's said here to, to explain uh, or to, to comment on, on what he has said. So let's have a look at this in a bit more detail. First of all, he says, uh, you will see that there's been a large spike in all-cause mortality. Now, when he said that, he was referring uh, our viewer to the Euromomo website. Uh, so he said, uh, you will see there's been a large spike in all-cause mortality, uh, far above anything seen in recent years, uh, in a context where all of Europe has put in place large-scale social distancing, even Sweden, although their data isn't on that site. Well, I'm really going to ask a question here. Is... Neil Ferguson aware of what's on that site because, of course, uh, Sweden absolutely is on the Euromomo site and the evidence from the data on the Euromomo site from uh, Sweden shows that they didn't have anything like the spike that other countries in Europe had, particularly not by comparison with England in particular. Uh, Ferguson in his email went on to say this, uh, the key thing uh, all the models show is that had it not been for the controls introduced the impact would have been a lot worse. Well, I think we've seen from the non-lockdown versus lockdown graph that we showed just a few seconds ago, that's not the case. Um, and uh, of course, what he's talking about is what the models are showing, not what the reality is. So um, I think <laughs> there's a, a, some questions to be answered there as well. Uh, and he went on to say this, uh, probably 50 to 70% of these deaths are COVID and 30 to 50% are from people from dying from other things uh, because healthcare is overloaded or people feel more reluctant to go to hospital. But is healthcare overloaded? Because certainly uh, people working in the healthcare uh, business seem to have lots of uh, time to take photographs of them dancing around. 
uh, and so on, at videos and posting them on social media and so on. And, um, and we know from the reports, Mike, coming in from consultancy, uh, consultant level in the NHS to senior nursing staff to other people employed in the NHS that the, the wards are, are operating at very, very low capacity. Uh, we know this. Uh, absolutely. And I had another report from Exeter yesterday from a consultant there saying that uh, they've got nothing to do. Um, so uh, really, it's this last section here where he says, or people feel more reluctant to go to hospital. He, it seems to be acceptable to Neil Ferguson that people would be in a position where they feel more reluctant to go to hospital. This is because of the uh, mainstream media headlines uh, pushing the notion that this is uh, an extremely contagious, extremely dangerous disease um, and that people are going to die if they come into nearest contact with it. People are then left with the choice. Do I go to hospital with the heart attack symptoms or the stroke symptoms that I'm experiencing at the moment and potentially uh, get COVID on top of that? Yeah. Or do I try to try to uh, keep going at home, which of course is resulting in people dying at home. So let's just have a look, just remind everybody uh, what the situation is with this, because it's the latest uh, Office for National Statistics uh, numbers, which came out yesterday. Uh, and uh, well, we can see that uh, the peak, we seem to have gone over the top at last. Uh, but if we actually take into consideration the COVID-19 attributed deaths, then it's the dotted line here, uh, leaving this shaded area uh, as being the difference. So th that represents non-COVID non deaths, in other words, deaths that have resulted from the lockdown. And that appears to fit with what Neil Ferguson said in his email, 30 to 50% of the people that have died, the excess mortality in the last four or five weeks um, has been as a result of the lockdown. That's what he has acknowledged there. But uh, the question is whether these uh, deaths that are attributed to COVID-19 were actually as a result of COVID-19. And there's a difference there because as we've mentioned before, uh, when you go back to the, uh, to the uh, Italian statistics, um, there, there we had Professor Walter Riccardi, Ricciardi, sorry, uh, who's the scientific advisor to, the, uh, to Italy's Minister of Health. And the quote that the Telegraph put out was, uh, on re-evaluation by the National Institute of Health, only 12% of death certificates have shown a direct causality from coronavirus, while 88% of patients who have died have had at least one pre-morbidity, many had two or three. So if we, this is slightly speculative, but if we put that 12% uh, onto this particular graph, then this becomes the uh, number of deaths, uh, excess deaths as a result of the lockdown, not the previous one. I suspect the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, nobody is addressing this in the mainstream press. And it, we just say it again, it has to be addressed. And, and for Ferguson, these are just statistics. It doesn't actually matter that they're statistics about people dying, many of them elderly, extremely vulnerable people who are ill in any case. We've lost a, a few thousand people. I don't really we're just arguing about statistics when it's obvious the government's uh, the government has deliberately misled the public over these figures and thousands of people have died alex what do you think is going on here 
I think, Brian, that it's more likely that Professor Neil Ferguson was pushed than that he jumped, actually. And he could even have been, uh, shall we say, enticed, although, uh, you know, we're no judges of these things. But female members of the UK Column Core Research team have suggested that there may have been uh, some enticement necessary in order to put those two together. Well, anyway, uh, Neil Ferguson's non-resignation, and I'm glad that Mike has already uh, highlighted that and talked about his uh, stepping aside, which is what he's called it, apparently. This is the crux of it. And we have to go to our trusty Scottish correspondent, David Scott, to know what's going on here. The Scottish model of government, the unified field of all public authorities. So we see this in the fact that academia, in the form of a professor at Imperial College in London, um, is part of the government's uh, core blob. We've seen the same in Scotland, of course, where in very similar circumstances of hypocrisy, the Scottish uh, Chief Medical Officer, Catherine Calderwood, never actually resigned in writing. We've seen it with a Crown Minister in Scotland caught uh, uh, grooming a minor, Derek Mackay. Nobody has had wind of his uh, uh, resignation letter. And I doubt anyone will have sight of um, Professor Neil Ferguson's resignation letter either, because he's just too useful. He's been switched out sideways. I think some UK column viewers will remember George Carlin's quotation that, um, you know, it's a big club and you're not in it. Uh, Mr. Aronovich in the Notorious Times, uh, jumping to Mr. Professor Ferguson's defence, not the first time Mr. Aronovich has, has done such things, indicating that there's some kind of loyalties or fraternity going on behind the scene. And if you commit picadillos, well, all to the bad, but uh, you, you're too useful to be completely removed from the picture. So here's a challenge. You know, will there actually be a resignation letter from all of Professor Ferguson's public duties? I doubt it. Now, I've been trying to think what the right biblical proverb is to be adapted to this situation because uh, pride goeth before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. So I've seen a couple that might uh, fit the bill. One would be um, he craved others himself he could not crave or another modification of that would be he behaved others himself he could not behave but my personal favourite from a long time viewer Purple Hoax is thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife covered with a D of course. <laughs> Okay, thank you for that. Well, it's very interesting because the uh, mirror is on the attack as well. Mirror focused on Matt Hancock and they are absolutely uh, not messing around because basically they're saying that Matt Hancock shamelessly fiddled figures to reach the coronavirus test target. The health secretary brazenly added 40,000 tests in the post to 80,000 really taking place. And apparently Labour have backed an inquiry into the government's handling of the crisis. I encourage people to read this article because I think it's so important what it's saying here, that he fiddled the figures to reach his target of 100,000 coronavirus tests a day. Um, one colleague said it's classic Matt. He's as slippery as a bar of soap. Well, that's a little bit mirror, but let's get into the really important stuff. Um, but... Uh, um, he added those 40,000 tests in order to fiddle the figures. And where did that take us? Well, let's have a look at it here, because basically he started off by talking about unveiling a care badge. Uh, but the comment from the mirror is as hospitals were ordered to discharge elderly patients directly into homes, risking, quote, an explosion of infection. And this is starting now to give more weight, Mike, to your uh, shaded red zone of these extra deaths uh, that even Ferguson is having to having to acknowledge. And what have we got here? By the time the health secretary had proudly launched it, HC1, 
Britain's biggest care home operator had lost more than 300 uh, residents and a carer in its 232 homes. But let's uh, really get into it here. On the first day of the combined figures, the UK toll jumped by more than 4,000, confirming the true extent of the crisis. But now reports suggest anywhere between 7,500 and 17,500 care home residents may have died as a result of COVID-19. Well, that statement is incomplete because, of course, it's not COVID uh, as a result of COVID-19. It's COVID-19 and lockdown as a combination. And I'm going to say here, um, this is a crime which we don't often talk about these days. There's two misfeasance and malfeasance in public office. So we're going to ask today, is this malfeasance in public office resulting in thousands of people dying? And uh, we'll add a bit more in here. Um, and it picks up a little bit on what uh, you've just said, Alex, because I put in the comment, or is this Hancock the full guy for the real culprits? And we talked about those on Monday, the people in government who are using the COVID crisis and lockdown to strive for repurposing government and rethinking society. So they want people locked up so that we don't really pay attention to these massive changes to constitutional issues and society as a whole. Um, we're talking thousands of people being killed. It's not they die, they have been killed as a result of these policies. And I think somebody, uh, um, it will be more than one individual, of course, should be culpable. Um, and in the meantime, more and more people questioning uh, whether that attribution of COVID-19 means that somebody actually died of COVID-19. This is a tweet by Kate Hoey, MP. Uh, why does this seem to keep happening? Is it becoming automatic for COVID as contri contributing uh, to be put on every death certificate in nursing care homes? If so, very wrong in my view. And if she's uh, uh, embedded a tweet there from somebody else saying that uh, another person has been uh, given COVID as the reason for death when they didn't have any COVID symptoms and in fact uh, was never tested for COVID. Uh, but as well as that, a very interesting uh, tweet here uh, from uh, Douglas Carswell, former MP of course, saying, according to this graph, uh, the big fall in R, which is the infection rate. This is a thing that the government is using to justify the continuing lockup at the moment because they're saying we've got to keep R below one. Uh, and R below one means that, that of course, it's not the, the, the spread of the disease isn't growing at an exponential rate. Uh, so he's saying, according to this, the big fall in R uh, happened before compulsory lockdown. Uh, we were on course to respond like the Swedes. Who said, uh, who said what uh, at those three or four key meetings? to change the strategy of to a strategy of compulsion. Uh, and it's a pretty clear graph there, Brian, showing the uh, reduction in R over time uh, and that R was in fact below one well before the lockdown uh, even uh, took place. Yeah, um, this, this is, this is uh, evidence being put forward, Mike, that should result in, in a full and open full house debate in parliament. This is not stuff to be discussed with a few people scrabbling around on Skype. Uh, because of the repurposing of government. This should be a full house discussing who has been lying over these figures resulting in people dying. Mm. Well, let's take it a step further because, of course, SAGE, the government's uh, advisory group, has been the 
body which has produced all the guidance and the Daily Mail a few days ago was picking up on this and let's have a look at what uh, was actually being talked about here. So I've taken some quotes out of the article and uh, what, what have we got here? Well, Mr Cummings had listened in on SAGE meetings and occasionally asked questions, but he's not on or a member of SAGE. So this is, uh, sorry, I'll bring that up on screen for you. So this is uh, one of the comments that's come out of what we're calling Boris Johnson's Office of Propaganda. Uh, Boris went on to say, I reject the suggestion that Mr Cummings had influenced uh, the advice by SAGE. And uh, this one here, SAGE provide independent scientific advice to government. No political advisers influence this advice. Now, this is coming from the number 10 anonymous spokesperson, of course, but uh, presumably with the prime minister's approval. And the last one, the scientists who contribute to SAGE are amongst the most eminent in their fields. It is completely wrong to imply that their advice in is, is in any way not uh, is in any way not impartial. So he's, um, he's coming out pretty forcefully with this. And um, what else can we bring up? Well, at the time that the Mail made this report, they were able to say quite rightly that currently the membership of the group is, is kept secret. Minutes of recent meetings have not been published and neither is the later evidence on which recommendations have been made. So that's pretty hard hitting stuff. And so that's the reality that uh, basically uh, we've got a secret meeting with secret membership attended by Boris Johnson's top aide, who by coincidence is the very man who pushed uh, for the lockdown, lock up and uh, pubs and restaurants to close. And uh, if we add in the second uh, bit here, that, the deliberations and recommendations of the secret SAGE meetings were never fully debated in Parliament, leaving backbench MPs ignorant and isolated. And that's really the situation still with our backbench MPs. Uh, they simply believe the briefings that their own parties give them. And of course, they're utterly ignorant. But the work done by journalists at least forced SAGE to declare its hand to some extent. So if you go and have a look on the government website, you'll find that they've made this statement. So names of participants who provided input as experts at one or more meetings, including uh, public servants uh, who acted in an expert capacity, they're listed. Um, but there are other officials from Her Majesty's government, and these are not listed. These names are not made public. And also some individuals who participated in the SAGE meetings have said they don't want their names to be made public. Uh, so basically, we've got a secret meeting which remains secret. And yet this is the organisation which has got people locked up in UK in house arrest. So let's bring on... Uh, the names that the government have released. I know these are very small. I'm going to encourage viewers and listeners to get online and go to the government website to read these names for themselves. But I just want to emphasise there's a lot of them and we have no real idea what the interests of these individuals are. So I did a quick scan before the news today and I noticed this lady, Professor Charlotte Watts, Chief Scientific Advisor, Department for International Development. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting post. I wonder who she has been involved in. And it didn't take me too long to find via the Sainsbury's website uh, that this lady 
has been meeting up with uh, Bill Gates. This is to do with world food. Uh, but nevertheless, there she is listed alongside uh, Bill, who came as the chief representative of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So that was a cuddly little get together. And uh, if we have a look at Sainsbury's report on this, it says that this is part of increased cooperation between Bill Gates and the Department for International Development. And as to be expected, Bill Gates um, coughs up an extra 38 uh, uh, million, um, which is, sorry, that 38 million is coming in from the UK and the Department of International Development alongside Bill Gates money. And um, that's gonna keep the little pot really sweet. So, is the lady independent of Bill Gates? I'm not saying she she isn't, but the public doesn't know because the government doesn't want to give the detail about what these individuals are up to. But we did a bit more research and we were intrigued by this little video clip this lady has posted. Think about the challenge that I would like us to prioritise. I think it's all of the elements around global health that aren't solved by improving health systems. It's by tackling structural inequalities, poverty, discrimination, gender inequality. And to me, they're the ones in global health we should be really focusing on that are not only technical as problems, but also require political um, change and engagement to really have an impact. What, so what she declares is that she is, she is a political campaigner, albeit in the field of health, but she says she is working to create political change. Therefore, she has a political role. That's uh, what she's doing. And she's executing that role within the Department for International Development, which happens to be giving money to Bill Gates. So if we bring in the Prime Minister's uh, remarks that we showed earlier, but we just focus in, SAGE provide independent scientific advice to government. No political advisors influence this, this advice. Well, that's clearly untrue. And then the scientists who contribute to SAGE are amongst the most eminent in their fields. It's completely wrong to imply that their advice is in any way not impartial. This cannot be true. So is, is Boris ignorant of what this uh, SAGE uh, organisation is really about or is he lying? And then we want to know if you've got Dominic Cummings in there putting in political opinion and we've got Charlotte Watts who's describing herself as a political campaigner who is this organization and who's really running government? Mm. Alexi, any thoughts? Well, I'm not a um, professional in the field of voice analysis, but I've done a fair amount of it as a GCHQ transcriber for eight years and got a fairly good feel for it. And I did notice, I tried to listen with my eyes closed to see where the pitch was going. Change was very uh, mantra-like in the way that it was uh, paused before paused afterwards and given strong intonation and drawn out. So uh, I wouldn't suggest that this is definitely a kind of neuro-linguistic programming, but it's heading that way in my, shall we say, broad-based experience, which doesn't have letters after it, but is, is fairly qualified. Okay, thanks for that. Now, um, uh, a couple of European countries are, are a few weeks ahead of us, Alex. Uh, and the question is, uh, what, uh, what sort of uh, comeback is happening over there with respect to their lockdowns? 
quite a lot from the Freedom Party of Austria, the FPÖ, at quite senior level. Now, Austria was the first country more or less into severe lockdown and one of the first out of it, as it's uh, got more or less on top of the figures. But we're going to see a bit of criticism shortly about this. And this is criticism levelled by not just anyone in Parliament, but by the recent former Interior Minister, Herbert Kickel, who had to resign because of the Ibiza scandal with supposed uh, grubbing for Russian money, if people will recall that. Uh, but he's able to look the Chancellor of the so-called Conservative Green Coalition government, Sebastian Kurz, in the eye for much of this speech, who's uh, Kurz is hiding behind his mask, of course. And interestingly, Herr Kickel has to speak from behind bulletproof glass. I think that's a security feature that the Austrian Federal Parliament has now brought in. But here's the last couple of minutes of uh, a speech excellently transcribed by Cassius. People can go to youtube.com slash CassiusDX to find the excellent videos. And here, Herr Kickel is rising to a crescendo. And he's saying that uh, you're doing the opposite uh, of what you say, Mr. Chancellor. Um, earlier in the speech, he has said you, you needed to pose as our saviour, which is why you had this stage set. Um, he's now saying that there may be forced vaccinations as part of this plan, which has been unveiled for the uh, lifting uh, up of the lockdown, which hasn't been talked about. Uh, he's saying, I've counted you doing up to 60 conferences and uh, you're you know, putting people on, on short pay for unemployment. You're, you're uh, neglecting restaurateurs, the tourism sector. Uh, here he keeps looking down. In fact, earlier in the speech, uh, Kiko has actually said to, to Kurtz and some of the members of parliament in the chamber, uh, would you please stop fiddling with your phones, which is something, by the way, that Chancellor Merkel does when she comes to the German Bundestag now as well, when she gets unwelcome criticism from the Die Linke or the RFD parties. And now he's coming back to the theme of following best practice. Put your faith in reason rather than relying on fear. Embrace the normal normality and abandon your new normality. So he's warming up to his final theme, which is the new normality is not something that uh, Herr Kickel and his Freedom Party, or some of them, are going to accept. He said, I've spoken emotionally today, and I'll, I know I'll get a lot of blowback because of speaking emotionally. But he says, I wanted to open up a breach in the wall. That's the public uh, position, as it were, and show that there is a, a right to hold a stance that does not pay ham homage to the new normality. And then he finishes with this. He says, uh, I'm saying all this because I do not want truth to become another victim of this new normality after the livelihoods of people have been wrecked, after the restrictions on freedom and independence. I do not want truth to become another victim of your new normality. And with that, his quarter hour intervention came to an end, which has been subtitled in full by the excellent Irish subtitler Cassius. So we're, we're seeing some momentum here. The one drawback with the Freedom Party of Austria is that they made a hash in uh, Herr Kickel's own home state of Carinthia. They made a hash of government and bankrupted the state coffers because they don't have a deep understanding of constitutional government. So they're nothing more really than populist critics. Now, compare that with a really serious gentleman here. This is Vittorio Scarbi in Italy. Some of the older viewers might remember that name uh, because back in the early 90s with Italy's Tangentopoli scandal, otherwise known as Mani Puliti or Cl Clean Hands scandal, he more or less single-handedly brought down the First Republic period in Italy's constitution uh, because in those days he was pointing out that in the Napoleonic law system, judges, uh, under the excuse of clearing up corruption, uh, were putting people in endless pre-trial detention, much as has been happening in France, of course, with people like 
Lynn Tyre, and this was leading to all kinds of misery, suicide, wrecked families, wrecked jobs. Torquil Dick Erickson has spoken about this a lot, the campaigner against Corpus Juris, whose uh, big debate I attended in Cambridge in the early 90s, and nothing's changed since then. So Scarby gets very fiery. People can go to the RAIR Foundation page and find that speech, but he said that you're actually, um, he's not he's speaking to you collectively here, he's not speaking to the Prime Minister, unlike the Austrian case. He's saying, you, the government, are uh, lying about 25,000 of these deaths, which um, an infectious disease specialist, uh, a professor, has pointed out were actually heart disease and cancer deaths, as we were saying earlier in the programme with regard to Britain. And uh, he's saying you're using these to terrorise the Italian people into submitting to a dictatorship by consent. So quite a strong position, and that's the difference really between just a system critic in, in itself and a gentleman who really knows the constitution and where the limits of government are. Mm. Uh, well, uh, in the United States then, uh, we've got this case, uh, Dallas Salon, owner who refused to close, sentenced to seven days in jail, ordered to pay fines. Now, before you uh, go into the detail of this, we have a little video clip here uh, where she's addressing the judge and explaining uh, why she will not ref uh, close uh, her salon. Proceed. Judge, I would like to say that I have much respect for this court and laws. And that I've never been, been in this position before. And it's not some place that I want to be. But I have to disagree with you, sir, when, I, when you say that I'm selfish. Because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision, but I am not going to shut the salon. Uh, so she's not willing to shut the salon. Uh, and according to this article from the Texas Tribune, the headlines, Dallas salon owner who refused to close, sentenced to seven days in jail, ordered to pay fines. Uh, so Alex, uh, what are your thoughts on it? Well, again, we turn to the constitutional level of this because such abuses are happening all over the Western world. The Americans are right to say that they have a very superior constitution and the Republic of Texas, of course, uh, had an independent period in which it had arguably even a better constitution in, in some ways. But what does it come to when an elected state judge here, Eric Noyer, just before that, that clip opened, says to the lady, uh, basically as a populist pose, uh, you have offended our societal norms, you have broken the law by which he means an executive order signed uh, and presented to President Trump to sign, but never having gone through Congress. You've broken the law, he wrongly says. But if you apologize, which reminds me very much of Marxist struggle sessions in China, uh, then we will uh, you know, graciously uh, give you the indulgence of not sending you to jail for seven days and fining you. Incidentally, the offence that she ended up being uh, fined and jailed for has been reported variously as civil or criminal contempt of court. I'm put in mind here of uh, one of the Supreme Court justices of the United States at federal level in the 1930s, um, who pointed out that the idea of criminal contempt of court without a jury sitting uh, was judge-made law and uh, was no part of the common law tradition. But uh, all of this actually has come back and people continue to vote for such judges, so they get what they vote for. Mm. Um, okay, thank you very much for that, Alex. Now, if you like what the UK Column's doing and you would like to help us out, then please head over to uh, ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there and it would be much 
appreciated, much needed as well. Uh, and uh, a reminder that uh, this weekend is uh, AV11, uh, which is going to be live streamed this year for obvious reasons. Uh, you can get uh, uh, tickets to that uh, at on the UK Column website. The, uh, the URL is on screen at the moment. Um, and, uh, well, as a result of that, of course, uh, there will be no UK Column news on Friday. Uh, we'll be back uh, on Monday. Indeed. And uh, let's just have a look at some of the speakers because uh, very good lineup. We've got Gemma O'Doherty exposing corruption, David Dubine, uh, Patrick Henningsen, who'll be talking about the West New China Syndrome Flu World Order, Gary Fruin, uh, talking about how society works and how we've ended up in some of this constitutional constitutional program. John Hickman on disease. Uh, Mads Palsvik, who's uh, going to be talking about World War Three and the globalist versus the world population. Uh, what do we do about it? Um, Alex Thompson is also there, the victorious mindset for the long haul. And it's great to see that uh, we've got Lady Debbie Evans, who's uh, coming in talking about uh, what's really happening in the wastewater industry. So there's a whole mix of people, different backgrounds, talking different subjects. And if you haven't already bought into this, uh, it's the only way it can be done in lockdown, mm. lock up. Mm house arrest uh, tune in and uh, if you've got a ticket obviously you can see what the speakers are talking about online um, now of course the uh, nhs uh, social the nhs app is now available and uh, as far as uh, people in the isle of wider concerned anyway where it's being piloted uh, now of course uh, neil ferguson this is really what was going on. There wasn't anything untoward going at all, on at all. They were just testing that app. That can be the only explanation for it. Well, there's no social distancing there, Mike. Oh, well, that is true. Uh, but anyway, the NHS app, the uh, National Cybersecurity Centre has now issued some uh, information about it. So let's just have a look. Uh, first of all, they're saying code is truth. <laughs> the document is correct at the time of writing. This document is correct at the time of writing, but the system is still in development. So there may be detailed changes before release. Um, so with that caveat in mind, uh, they produced a helpful infographic that compares uh, the, dis the decentralized uh, ways of that this might work with the centralized way. Of course, the NHS COVID-19 app is using a centralized architecture, uh, which means all the data gets uh, managed centrally and is assessed centrally. Um, so uh, how they describe it is that if you as an individual, if I as an individual were to download this app, that it keeps an anonymous record of when I've been close to other people. Uh, if I self-diagnose in the app uh, uh, as displaying COVID-19 symptoms, I can choose to provide my personal record of proximity events to an NHSX system. The NHSX system can then work out who to notify uh, that they've potentially been in contact with COVID-19. Uh, to these people, it can provide the latest advice and potentially access to testing, uh, analysis of the records of proximity, uh, proximity events from people displaying symptoms will allow NHSX to monitor and control the spread of the virus. Uh, preserving the privacy of users is a high priority. They say personal information is kept to a minimum unless uh, it uh, uh, unless I enter it. Ah, yes, okay, so I understand. So anyway, they uh, they the, the, a couple of comments on this. First of all, they refer re, each app generates an identifier, uh, and the, they refresh these identifiers uh, each. 
24 hours. So every time there's a proximity event, an identifier is sent to the apps that are in proximity, to the phones that are in proximity with the phone that you have. Um, so any third party can track uh, an individual using that app for 24 hours before the identifier is rotated. Um, this is going to be pretty heavy on people's phones, on their batteries. So the question is whether that's going to actually encourage or discourage use. Uh, and of course, uh, the, uh, the authors of the app hold a master key uh, and that can be used to reveal uh, the identifier of any individual using the system. So the question then is, uh, will the scope of the use of this data uh, be broadened out over time? That remains to be seen. Now, Alex, uh, related to this, uh, you have uh, highlighted this uh, from InfoSecurity, uh, a joint statement, and also from Guido Fox, uh, NHS app rebuttal and response. So there's clearly quite a bit of discussion going on over the security and the privacy implications. There is, and if people want to read that, the most recent piece will uh, be the one that helps them most, which is Guido Fawkes, which is order-order.com. And if people look there for the NHS app rebuttal and response, then linked halfway down that is the joint statement PDF, which I've put on the left-hand side, dated the 29th of April, signed by a large number of NHS people who are very concerned about the NHS, NHS's research data wing, NHSX, developing this app. And then at the back of the pile there was GCHQ being granted access to NHS data. Now, what's important here is that GCHQ, of course, is the British government's uh, signals intelligence and information security uh, agency. In other words, it is poacher and gamekeeper of electronic information. Uh, when I left GCHQ in 2009, the two were still housed in a single uh, body. Uh, the info, information security wing was simply called the CESG, a group within GCHQ. And uh, it was extremely secret within GCHQ even to talk about the fact that there was a relation with the Israeli SIGINT agency, Unit 8200, which of course is military and predatory and shapes the environment. And all these things were unlawful. Uh, and in fact, not just unlawful, but illegal for Britain and America to do in those days domestically. Fast forward a couple of years, I've emigrated to the Netherlands. And what do I find? But Brian Gerrish reporting that Francis Maud, who was then the kingpin of uh, the common purpose agenda in uh, the British government of that time, was openly boasting that Israel and Britain's GCHQ were working together on information security. Fast forward another couple of years and the information security wing of GCHQ has moved to a fancy new premises in Westminster, so to, it's half, closer to the heart of the action than GCHQ proper, which is left in, the, in Cheltenham. So a lot of agendas going on at once. And if we want to focus in on the, a man who's at the centre of this all, it's Matthew Gould, who at the period was a career foreign office diplomat, and he had been uh, an ambassador, in fact, the first Jewish uh, British ambassador to Israel, which makes him impossible to talk about without being accused of anti-Semitism, but certainly accused of split loyalties in that regard. Then he went to the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, where he oversaw information security and, as it were, carved it off from signals intelligence and made it a policy area in its own right to achieve central government aims, particularly communication and propaganda aims. And now we see that he's been appointed the director of NHSX. I don't know what thoughts you have on that, Brian and Mike, but I'm starting to smell a rat there. Well, so, well I, I was just going to ask you, I mean, why uh, this is this is allegedly about public health. It's about uh, tracking the, the the progress of a of a virus, which is, we could argue, uh, mostly finished now. But uh, it's tracking the progress of a virus. Why would GCHQ be involved in this at all? 
Well, the alleged reason, which GCHQ's uh, NCSC has said uh, is the reason, together with a very recently created American equivalent, which is the Cybersecurity and Information Security Agency, CISA, the two agencies which have just been spun out to do InfoSec at top level, uh, now independent of their parent, uh, parent organizations in government, claim that it is because nasty Eurasian powers are hacking specifically COVID responses in Western countries, opportunistically looking for weaknesses to see how our health systems are coping. Now, I find that hard to believe, uh, particularly that so much effort would be put into that. And I think that if you look at the personalities and careers and skill profiles of the people involved, such as Mr. Gould, it has far more to do with diplomatic and communications aims. Um, you could almost say that the COVID story is too useful not to milk for all it's worth. Uh, well, indeed, we, ha we, have, uh, we have this from the NCSC cyber warning issued for key healthcare organisations in UK and USA. Uh, and well, you've basically explained this, but I just wanted to to put up the uh, the quote from Dominic Rab, the UK will continue to counter those who conduct reckless cyber attacks for their own malicious ends. Ends. Uh, we're working closely with our allies to hold the perpetrators to account and deter further malicious cyber activity around the world. So, so no opportunity to, to to pursue their political agenda is going to waste under this COVID nineteen crisis. Uh, and we see the sort of Russia China narrative uh, being brought into it. Uh, through their determination that we're under constant state and non-state uh, directed cyber attack, Alex? This is it, isn't it? And what we, uh, to put the final piece in this jigsaw, really, it is always managing Johnny Continental. That's what the Anglo-Americans do best. Uh, let's not put all the blame on MI6, although they have a big rivalry with GCHQ sometimes. A lot of the slick operators at the top of GCHQ, and particularly the, the geek arm of it now, CESG, now called NCSC, very much enjoy telling the Continentals what to do. It's a, a kind of digital version of Operation Gladio. You know, trust us, we're the Brits. Uh, we'll tell you how to fight the uh, rearguard action against the Russians. Well, we don't lose any men in the process. Uh, you you uh, Continentals will do. Uh, so that, there's that agenda of the unified apportionment of blame, which has been such a, a massive issue in Russiagate. And now we're finding in the case, uh, particularly of Russiagate, that the broadcasting went as it were, from former MI6 officials via Ukraine and other former Soviet republics and traditional enemies of Russia, and back out again to the Anglosphere. Uh, and in the middle stage, it was mixed up so that it was uh, claimed to be Russian threats, but these were all anti-Russian, pro-Anglo oligarchs involved. That's the kind of trick you can pull if you are claiming the um, unique ability to crunch the data to find out who's been hacking. Can I just very quickly add a bit in here. Uh, an amazing topic. We, we need more time. We can't do it today. Um, but just to say that the fear uh, which is being thrown at the British public, we've got to be fearful every moment of our um, waking life, uh, is of course making us very susceptible to the uh, mesmerism, the brainwashing that's being brought in by the British government. And we shouldn't forget that it was Dr. David Halpin, master of the uh, applied behavioural psychology, uh, Ecology dark arts that has also been sniffing around the work of SAGE. So this is a very dangerous combination that we've got um, the security services being brought into what should be 
an organization looking after our health, the NHS, and at the same time, we've got these mysterious people with their skills at uh, changing the way people think and behave using applied behavioral psychology. There's a lot more work to be done, and we need many more people to uh, be lifting the lids on those pots. Um, and uh, Alex, uh, I think we're pretty much out of time now, but, uh, but let's just cover this, because one of the big uh, questions that isn't getting any coverage in the uh, mainstream press at the moment is, of course, we're supposedly halfway through a negotiation about uh, the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. And, uh, well, uh, security and defence, but security is uh, a big part of that. And uh, so The Guardian here saying UK making impossible demands over Europol database in EU talks. So suddenly, or at last, perhaps, we have uh, at least one article uh, trying to, to bring us up to date with what's going on in these negotiations. But uh, so far, under the, the smokescreen of, of COVID, we're getting very little information. Quite. This is one of the key things going on uh, with regard to the exit agreements uh, for the future relationship now, the second half of it. And again, it's a, a leaked government document covered by The Guardian, which points out that the Germans are shocked that the British government, uh, which, of course, voluntarily under Theresa May's tenure at the Home Office, voluntarily re-entered the European arrest warrant scheme and other constitutional horrors. It's the British government now pushing to be treated in Europol as though it were a full member of the European Union to get to see continental police data. It's the same issue again, bringing things back to a node, uh, wanting international data to go into a single British stroke American stroke Israeli stroke whatever node, and from there to be represented and recast without any fear of, of rival views. Yeah. Okay. Well, what, what can we say? We are still locked up under house arrest. We know that the British government has um, interfered with the statistics on COVID-19 uh, presented to the public. It now appears that much of that was deliberate. Thousands of people have died as a result. We're still locked up. A lot of work to be done to bring this government of occupation to account. And I'll end on the note, several people asking, how is Ian Crane doing? Uh, Ian is recovering quite nicely uh, from his emergency um, surgery. Those operations caused him a lot of pain, but he's getting over that. And uh, he is hoping very much that he may be uh, released to be at home uh, in the next few days. But we'll see how that goes. But thank you very much to everybody who's been thinking of him, praying for him and uh, encouraging him to, to be back in the fight. There will be more news on that in the coming days. Thanks very much. Alex, thanks for joining us. That's UK Column News for today. Uh, we will be back on Monday. Monday. Yep. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.